Welcome, my friends. Welcome to my world. I'm your host, Kevin Rutherford. It is, what day is today? Today's Thursday, July 14th. We are here live. It is a free-for-all. We are doing one hour today. Uh, I've got a lot going on, uh, and we won't be able to do rolling toe today. So, quick day, one hour, anything goes. If you have a question, a comment, a topic, we're opening the phone lines right now. So, start dialing. I promise you'll get through 855-950-3835. Try not to wait till the end, uh, because I may not be able to get to your call today. Most of the time now, I just stay we go long if we need to. We take all the calls and questions when we can. You can't do that today, and we won't be able to have rolling tow today either. So jump in right now, and we'll talk about it. 855-950-3835. Calls are starting to come in. I'll get to them here in just a minute. I do have a couple things I want to talk about. Kind of big picture. Um, I would love to get some feedback from... Uh, anybody who has read the book, The End of the World is Just the Beginning. I've been talking about it quite a bit. Um, I finished that book. I said I was reading four at the same time, and I had to stop doing that. Uh, all four of these books are fairly complicated. Uh, so I, I, I stopped. I finished The End of the World book. Pretty amazing. It's uh, everything I read now, I'm, I'm kind of applying to that possibility it sounds so outrageous that that might be where we're headed but there's more and more evidence like i said it it could be totally wrong it makes a lot of assumptions the book makes sense when you're reading it but there's an awful lot of assumptions in there the world you know economy is outrageously complicated but i started noticing as i'm reading headlines every morning i'm kind of reading the headlines, thinking about this book and what it's claiming. And a lot of the headlines are starting to follow that trend. And just if you haven't heard me talk about this in the big picture, there's a lot of details in the book. Um, I think it's worth reading just because you get a better understanding of our global supply chain, which I really didn't understand. But the premise behind the book is kind of outrageous. And we're not talking about 30 or 50 years in the future. We're talking about right now. The next two decades is really what the book talks about, the 2020s and 2030s, uh, all the way up to the year 2040. And, you know, we've always been warned about, you know, a new world order and a one world order and a global government. And, you know, that's always been the conspiracy theory is that's where we're headed. And it's the elites of the world that want all this control. And it's the worst thing that could ever happen to the United States. And that that kind of thinking, as far as I can remember, has been around my whole life. And it turns out this book, is really claiming the exact opposite. You know, even the other day, uh, I forget which Biden administration employee it was, uh, but the guy stood there and said, you know, Americans are just going to have to suffer through all of these high prices and inflation because that's what it's going to take to bring about the liberal 
new world order or something along those lines. I may have butchered that a little bit, but you get the drift. I talked about it the other day and I quoted it exactly. Uh, I didn't have it up in front of me today, but that's like saying the quiet part out loud, you know, that, but it's that I don't think that's really happening. And this book says it's the opposite, that that's not where we're headed. We are headed to de-globalization, that countries are not going to be trading and shipping back and forth as much and maybe not at all. That, that's the premise behind the book. So now every country has to decide how they're going to survive without all of this import-export activity we currently have. We have a lot. We sh- when you read the book, it's crazy how much stuff we ship over and over and over before you have a final product and how many countries. One example, I think, said some vehicles have 30 countries involved in building that vehicle with all the parts that are in it. It's an outrageously complicated system. So now I'm kind of reading everything, thinking about that book, and a lot of what they're predicting is happening right now. I mean, I read an article, I forget which country, produces a specific computer chip. It's kind of like their thing. They can't get the materials they need to build enough of those chips. That's why we have chip shortages. This is just one example. So... Now there's a company in the U.S. getting set up to produce that chip here. Those are the kind of things that this book is predicting. Um, The global shipping is being disrupted. So more and more companies are looking to source more things locally. This would be such a major shift in the world. I can't even imagine So I'd love to get some feedback from somebody else. Along those lines, if we talk about, you know, global shipping, um, the ports, the the West Coast ports right now, I said that I read an article, there's still $40 billion worth of goods sitting out there that we haven't got through the ports yet. Well, that's about to get worse because of AB5. The ports are protesting. The owner-operators in the port started protesting, and there are several groups now talking about it, three different ports on the West Coast. That's going to disrupt this even more. So you got to pay attention to that. AB5 is going into effect right now. So it really has a big impact on um, the owner-operators who work in the ports. They're protesting. So we're going to see probably more supply chain disruptions because of that Uh, a lot of articles about small businesses really being hit hard right now Um, one I want to talk about well I see we got a lot of calls I got to make sure I manage the calls today too I don't want to tell everybody to call and then not get to them Um, so I may talk about this more tomorrow um, I don't, I'm not sure if we have John and Joel yet or not. We'll find out today. Uh, either way, I'll talk about it myself. I'll talk about it with them. Um, I'll just give you a quick rundown on what this particular article claimed. And I can't remember, was this in, uh, uh, this was in overdrive. Um, 
Let me find that again. Here we go. I highlighted something. So this was an article just about how um, small owner operators are starting to get hit hard. The the, um, title of the article, Inflation Surges to New High, Small Fleet Per Mile Profits Turning Negative. Now, when I read that, I'm a little skeptical. So here are the numbers, and I'll, I'll explain what I mean by that. Um, this is a quote from the article, quote, this time last year, the operating profit for long haul owner operators would have been around 31 cents a mile. Today, it's negative 35 cents a mile, assuming all other cost and utilization metrics remain unchanged. Reducing empty miles and controlling your costs are essential, especially for small fleets and owner operators. Wait a minute. Nothing about that quote in that paragraph makes any sense. Let's go back to that. This time last year, the operating profit for long-haul owner-operators would have been around 31 cents a mile. Bullshit. That's not even close. It's at least double that. 31 cents a mile profit? Who the hell would work for that? Now, I know some owner-operators do. Hell, I've had, you know, these purchase people making less than 20 cents a mile when we do the math right, but that is not true. That is not an average profit per mile for owner-operators last year. The data was, we talked about it all year. Hell, a lot of owner-operators were doing a dollar a mile profit last year. So 31 cents, I, don't, I do not know where they came up with that number, but that's, now, but it gets worse though. Now they're saying it's a negative 35 cents a mile, negative. That means we had a swing of 66 cents a mile. How did, where did, where did we have to spend 66 cents more a mile to operate a truck? Even if you're not getting the complete fuel surcharge, rates were elevated because of the fuel surcharge. I cannot in any scenario right now understand how an owner operator could be operating a truck at negative 35 cents a mile. The numbers don't make sense, but I also know this, most owner operators today, and if we go back and and truly there were owner operators only making 31 cents a mile, that means the average owner operator would only make 30 or $40,000 a year. The average family income in the United States right now is over $80,000, and those people are struggling with inflation. If you're an owner-operator and you were making 31 cents a mile last year, the minute it turns negative, you'd be out of business. You wouldn't survive two weeks. I I don't, I just, you know, and this is from Overdrive and Jason Cannon. I mean, he's the chief editor over at CCJ. I I just, I think I'm going to reach out to him. Um, I used to write for both of these magazines. Um, I think I'm going to reach out and ask him where he got these numbers. They're just not making sense to me. Um, but I was going to talk more about that and some other things, but I believe I better just jump into some calls. So if you want to dial up, jump in and join us, um, I'll spend the rest of the hour getting to your calls and questions. We do have to wrap this up right at nine o'clock Pacific time today. Uh, let's get started in Illinois. Robert, welcome. Hey, Kevin. Um, I know it's been a while, but uh, just came up recently, the track leases, how they differ from purchasing and the good, the bad, the ugly. 
Yeah, I'm not a big fan. You're seeing track leases again, huh? I haven't seen that yet. Yeah. Yeah, so a track and, lease. Uh, and the it, person I'm... Oh, go ahead. The person I'm working with, the person I'm working with says it's being common, so there's a lot of uh, well, uh, track leases out there, apparently. It's more common with fleets, and I think that's probably yeah. what he's referring to. Individual owner-operators in track leases are not that common. There, they, there was a couple of years that they were, and I can't remember when that was. Early 2000s, maybe. I remember writing articles about them, um, but I haven't even heard the term much for a long, long time. Uh, I do know that fleets do it more. And we hardly ever talk about that or hear it because it's just not important to me. So when we say track lease, it's a very specific. And track is T-R-A-C. Oh, it's terminal, residual, something, clause. I I forget exactly what it stands for. But it's a very specific lease. And in a track lease, you never own the vehicle. Uh, That's really what we're talking about. You, You really don't own the vehicle. And this is kind of... You know, fleets operate like this. They'll buy 100 vehicles and they know exactly what the vehicles are going to cost them every month. And they know exactly how much they're going to, how it's all going to work out at the end and how they're going to get 100 trucks after they're done with these. It's all worked out and fleets like that because it's consistent. They can plan, they can budget. For an owner operator, track leases do not make sense. They are, and let me ask you this, this, sometimes I like to approach things like this. Tell me why you would consider signing a track lease. Um, I don't know. It was just one of the uh, options they gave me. And obviously it's a lower down payment. Um, it's a lower uh, truck payment. Good. Now we're getting somewhere. And this is how I I asked you that question, because one of the things I want to do on the show is not always just answer everybody's questions, but actually start to teach them how to think about these things. So you could figure these things out on your own. Um, So let's think about this for a second. Just in general, if we have a big, I mean, leasing a truck's pretty big decision, isn't it? talking about a lot of money here yeah and a business and if we have a big decision to make one of the things to do is what i just did to you i asked you why would you consider signing this and honestly you didn't know well if it's a big decision we better know we better ask ourselves why are we even thinking about this what would be the advantage well after you thought about it a minute you said well it's a lower down payment it's a lower monthly payment well why is somebody just being generous and they're giving us a truck for less than we would have to pay for one? That doesn't make any sense. So now we have to ask, why is that payment cheaper? Because you're never going to own this thing. Uh, you're renting it. You won't build a penny of equity. Okay, it did have a, a buyout. It did have a buyout at the end. Correct, but do the math. But. The buyout is just about the same as if you never paid anything for this particular truck and just went out and bought one on the open market. There's no advantage to the buyout. You haven't built any real equity when you do the math on these things. Many times, depending on what the used truck market is doing, you may end up in a worse situation. But that's why the fleet's like the track. It kind of smooths that stuff out. But as an owner-operator, I don't want to compete with big fleets at what they're good at. 
Track leases make sense for them. They don't make sense for me. What makes sense for me is to manage my own equipment and build equity in it and then have periods where I don't have big equipment payments. That's how I compete against the power of fleets. I do the things they can't do or don't want to do. They don't want to try to manage a hundred trucks and and make them profitable throughout a buy-sell cycle. They have lots of other reasons why that doesn't make sense for them. So we have to be very careful as owner-operators that we're not doing things fleets do thinking it's smart. It's smart for them, but they're in a very, very different situation. My, my philosophy on owner-operators and equipment is you spec the absolute most efficient truck you can spec, whether you're buying it new or used. We get to pick what we're buying. When I say spec, you can spec a used truck. I sit down, I say, here's what I want in a used truck. I want this engine, this body style, this rear end, and then I go look for it. And I don't buy it until I find it. It's just like specking a new one. But the the goal for an owner-operator, the way you are really profitable, you spec that truck to be as efficient and low cost as possible. The best fuel mileage you can get, the lowest maintenance cost. And then honestly, you keep it for as long as it's still more profitable than a newer truck. And that might be 10 years. Just depends on the cycle we're in. Fleets are never going to keep trucks 10 years. They can't. doesn't make sense to them. But that's how you compete against them by doing things that make sense for owner operators. And a track lease doesn't, in my opinion. Okay. I mean, I, I had the other option, you know, I had the regular financing. That's what I would do. You know, double the double down and, you know, uh, but it was, it was a shorter term, shorter because the, uh, the, what, whatever they call it, the guaranteed income, you know, was a lot more expensive on the track lease too. So correct. Just, yeah. Yeah. But I haven't heard, I haven't heard you talk about it for a while. Oh, oh so no, it's, it's been, yeah, it's been years. Like I said, there was a time where these were getting really, really popular with owner operators. And I wrote articles saying, don't do this. This just does not make sense. So I got it. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for the call. Let's go to Illinois this time. Jerry, welcome to the program. Hi, Kevin. Uh, typically, I've got about four or five things, but since you're short on time, let's focus on my uh, real question for today. Okay. I had something sneak up on me that I never, ever expected in my life to ever happen. I'm damn near 65. How'd that what happen? What the hell am I going to do now? I don't know. I really don't. I, I got so much going on in my life, I just never expected to live that long, and here I am, almost 65. So I've got two questions, and they're... That, both questions focus on the same thing, so let me just ask them both, and then you can uh, uh, answer them. Uh, do I have to sign up for Social Security when I turn sixty-five? And then how does the uh, uh, how does the, well, I've got Liberty Health Share, and four or five months ago they changed plans, and I had to call in and opt for whatever plan I wanted to. And I asked them at that time what happens when I turn sixty-five, and she assured me that nothing happens at all when I turn 65 because they're not insurance at all. So they can't dictate what happens when I turn 65. However, about a week ago, now I get an email from them and said, 
once you turn 65, we will only pay what Medicare would not pay. You're responsible for your own expenses up to what Medicare would have paid. So can I, I have no intentions of retiring. That's not even an issue. Do I have to sign up for social security when I'm no. 65? And no. where does Medicare come into that no. aspect? So let's start with social security. You get to pick when you take social security. It depends on your birthday. You know, we couldn't complicate social security anymore. If we tried typical government, crap um you want to talk to the social no hurry on this and to answer your question no you do not have to take social security at 65 i think but you have to sign up for it well well when you say sign up i'm assuming you mean start receiving benefits no, no, just to, uh, let them know that you're oh, not well, going to, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that, that, I don't even worry about those kind of details. That That's not a big deal. Call them if there's some process you're supposed to check a box somewhere. I don't know. Um, if I remember right, we can wait till, what is it, 72 now if we want. Um, the longer- well, I don't know. I just had somebody tell me that for heaven's sake, whatever you do, make sure you sign up before you turn 65 so, even, so they'll know you're not taking it or I don't know. Well, like I said, I I would call them just I I don't even try to stay up on Social Security. It's a it's a mess. It honestly is Um, sometime during the year that you're 64. Just contact Social Security and say, I don't want to I don't want your money yet. I mean, that that's all we're talking about here. Um, The longer you wait to start the Social Security payments, the bigger your payments will be every month. The only way to know which way is better sign up earlier sign up late i can calculate it for you if you can tell me one thing i can't tell you that because i didn't think i'd live this long anyway exactly if you can't tell me when you're going to what day you're going to die on and what year i i can't tell you what makes more sense take it earlier take it late i'll tell you what i'm going to do um i've put myself in a pretty good financial situation where i don't think i'm going to need the social security at all so I will wait till the very last day they let me start taking it. Those payments will be bigger. Plus, I plan on living to 100. Um, I'm pretty darn healthy. I'm getting healthier all the time. So my goal is to push off Social Security as long as they'll let me. Because it, ultimately, I'll, I'll play the game. I'll probably end up winning by doing that. Um, if I get hit by a bus the next day, well, then I guess Uncle Sam wins, but not that I care anymore anyway. So that's kind of my philosophy. Um, a lot of people won't have that option. I mean, if they get to 65 and they can't work or inflation's killing them, they just might have to start taking it. But the longer you can wait, in my opinion, the better off you're going to be, unless you just know that the odds of you living past, you know, 75 are slim. Then you should probably take your Social Security as soon as you qualify for it. Okay. So that's well, kind of Medicare, the... Then, yeah, that. so Medicare, totally different because Medicare just starts. You, you don't pick and choose when you want to start Medicare. The uh, Liberty Healthshare is absolutely correct. They don't they're not bound by any kind of health insurance laws or regulations because they're not health insurance. They're what we call a medical reimbursement program. Um, 
again, if we think Social Security is complicated, Medicare is a disaster. The, the only thing you can do that I recommend is you find a Medicare specialist and they're out there. Um, don't call these commercials you see on TV with Joe Namath telling you, you know, we'll add more money to your Medicare benefit and you'll get free, you know, massages from sexy babes and all that other stuff they promise on all those commercials. Stay away from those companies. But you do have to find a good insurance agent who understands Medicare. There's there's this crazy, complicated system in Medicare called Part B. And Medicare pays for certain things and then your Part B kicks in and pays for certain things. And sometimes the Part B insurance is free depending on where you live. Um, it, it's a mess. The system is a mess. They have changed it a couple times recently. And at this point, I don't even try to keep up. Because for myself, if I have to make this decision, I'm going to go find somebody to help me through it. I don't even try to keep up with these rules. Okay, well, I've had Liberty Health Center for so long. I don't have an agent. I just don't know who to turn to. Well, and that's why I say when the time comes, you go look for one. Um, you do well, want a... I'm damn near here. <laughs> Well, then you should probably start looking for an insurance agent, a health insurance agent that works with uh, Medicare Part B plans. But according to some of the ads I've been getting now, but I'm getting close, there must be at least Part A through X of different plans. Well, that's what I mean. There's all kinds of crazy plans and they get complicated. We have somebody on the line. You know what? I'm just going to bring him right now. Um, It sounds like he has a piece of information I might be missing. Um, I'm just going to bring him into this call. Pat in Missouri. Welcome. Good morning. How you doing? Good. What do you got for us? I was, I was, I just went through the same scenario. I turned 65 in January and what I was told in it. My wife, I both for six months. Off. You have to sign up for Medicare three months before you turn 65, or else they're going to penalize you. And you were correct about Social Security. You can wait to, I, I was told 70, but maybe it's 72. But Medicare is the one you got to sign up at 65. That's what I, you might have confused. Well, you that three months before. Yeah, I think I had the big picture kind of right. You gave us a new detail that helps. Three months before you turn 65, you've got to sign up for Medicare. They're going to start penalizing you. Right. Well, within that three-month period. But if you wait to 65, they're going to penalize you. Got it. Okay. So we have have a three-month window that we were eligible to start signing up three months early, and we need to do it before the day we turn 65. You have to go into an office and sign up for it, or can you do it like how you sign? How do you actually sign up for it? What I did, I found a Blue Cross agent at home, and he got me signed up with it, and I got on supplemental A and B, which is through Humana, and it costs you like one hundred and seventy dollars a month for that. Jerry, that's so, why I said you need to go find an insurance agent. That that's right. really what uh, a health insurance agent that works with Medicare because it's a complicated system. But you find an agent, they walk you right through it. You pick the plan that makes right. the most sense for you. All right. Uh, I, yeah, I couldn't figure out how to work the, the, the system. I'm old and confused, and he uh, 
was very helpful and walked me right through it, you know. So Good. Just take Good. a little bit of time to get it. And, then, and if you ever start drawing Social Security, which my wife did a year ago at 64, then you don't have to go through it once you turn 65. You're already signed up for Medicare. They just start okay. taking them. Whatever the payment is out of your uh, Social Security, but you might—you sound like me. I'm just wait. I'm gonna wait to sixty-seven or sixty-eight to draw mine. So there you go. The way it works. Thank you, Pat. Well, I appreciate that's been very it. helpful. I appreciate. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that really helped. I just didn't understand the process. It sounds like I need to find an agent then and right. get a point with them and see them. So, all right, that answered the question. Then, thank you very much. All right, hey Pat, I just want to. That's wanted, all I had, Kevin. Pat, it down. Pat, yeah. anything else? Want to go ahead with him? I'll hang up then. Yeah, I was just going to ask Pat. Pat, was that all you were calling for to help us out, or something I can help you with? Right. right. Oh, perfect. I, yeah, just because I went through it a couple months ago. Yeah, that's that's all I needed. Yes. Perfect. Thank you. Well, the tribe is wonderful. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks, Kevin. You're welcome. All right. Good stuff. Tribe helping tribe. I like I said the the details on Social Security and Medicare. Um, I guess at some point I should probably start thinking about them. I'll be 60 um, next year. But I, I, like I said, Social Security putting way off. I'm not too concerned about Medicare because I don't go to the doctor anyway. Um, so I'll just probably pick when it comes to Medicare, just the cheapest option I can find. Let's, uh, let's go to Missouri. Mike, welcome to the program. Hey, Kevin. Is everything going on with you today? It is going pretty well so far. Um, we're finally in our kind of summer weather pattern here, which I absolutely love. The garden's growing like crazy, finally. I went from nothing growing to everything's exploding now, which is awesome. Uh, I did a video garden tour yesterday. I don't think we've got it posted yet, though. Uh, so, yeah, this is, uh, I, I just love this time of year. Nice long days, lots of sunshine. Get to play out in the garden a lot, so. Very good. Yeah. So, um, on the vinegar issue, I have a question because I have a place where I've gone and bought some sauerkraut, and I bought it from them before, and the sauerkraut was always, you know, just, you know, salt, and water, and they had some uh, caraway seeds in it also, but that, that was it. Well, this last time I went and bought it, I didn't take the time to look at the ingredients list because I, you know, just kind of trusted the fact that it well, was that. Right. Now I come to find out they've got salt and vinegar in it. Now. So, uh, where, did, where, are you, where are you buying this? Well, I was buying at a barbecue place there off of uh, 45 down there in Centerville, Texas. It's okay. A, so, a Woody Smokehouse. So, was it refrigerated? No, it wasn't. But the oh. thing of it is, the the other stuff had it was just, you know, salt. Well, well, let uh, me ask you a question, though. Cabbage and but before, caraway. when it was just but salt. Now it's got vinegar in it. When, before, when it was just salt and water, was it refrigerated? No. Then something's wrong with the whole story. No, wasn't Yeah, something's wrong with the whole story. If the original version of their sauerkraut was not refrigerated, then it, I'm not going to, well, I am going to say it, it shouldn't be probiotic. The law is probiotic foods have got to be kept cold. 
technically they don't need to be in the real world. They don't go bad, but that's the law. The law says probiotic foods must be kept cold. So if they weren't keeping it cold, there's one of two reasons. One, it wasn't probiotic, or two, they just don't care about the law. I I don't know the answer to that question. Now that it's got vinegar in it, it's not. And do you have the jar with you? Is it handy? Uh, no, I don't have a hand right now. Okay. It, what you should look for on a fermented food, it should say things like raw and probiotic. Okay. Well, I wasn't saying on the original bottles anyway. So. Then, then even though it didn't it, have vinegar, did. I'm, I'm wondering, I don't know why you couldn't can sauerkraut without vinegar and it wouldn't be probiotic i would can it just like i could can tomatoes or green beans or whatever you just put some you know cabbage and salt and you know your flavorings in a in a jar and you can it and now it's shelf stable but it's not i have a feeling this product was never probiotic yeah well but i did notice that on the new jars the lid that had them before were the type you've got where you use for the canning, where you've got the, the lid itself, and then you've got the a two piece. ring. Well, three piece, actually. Right. Yeah. yeah. Two, two piece with the, some have well, a separate yeah, seal, some don't, right? Two piece. Yeah. But I noticed on the new jars, it's just a single, single ne- lid. That's n- all there is to it. Neither one of those tell me anything. Now, would that make a I, difference? No. I, I can. Okay. I well, can, the question can them with either type of lid or I could ferment them with either type of lid. So nothing is telling me for sure that one was probiotic and one isn't. And I have a feeling that this product has never been probiotic. Right. Well, the only, the the question I really got is the fact that I did notice that once I did start using the, you know, new type with the vinegar in it, that my bowel has gone loose now so my ships in my school has gone loose now would that be the cause of it because of the vinegar who knows there's so many things that could have caused that there's so many variables typically vinegar shouldn't there's nothing about adding a little bit of vinegar to your diet that should cause that to happen right i mean yeah because every morning I, i i take you know and i Put apple cider vinegar. And well, here's one of the miracles. Here's one of the things you can try. Just stop eating it for a couple of weeks and see if anything changes, and then go back to eating it. And and if it's consistent, then yeah. you know it is the cause. It's possible it's the cause, but it's possible right. it's a hundred other things too. Right. Well, see, I've had the issue of having the dysbiosis anyway, which I've been trying to get rid of for the last eight or nine months, and it seems to be getting better now. But now that I've done this, you know, now my school is down loose again. Well, it's possible if if it was probiotic before, which, you know what? Maybe you should go back to him and ask him or call him and ask him. Was this ever a fermented probiotic food? And is it the, the, the idea of vinegar in a fermented food? I am still confused about because I keep finding recipes that have both. They are fermented, but right. there's vinegar at. Well, I, I just I have an example of it myself. I make fermented hot sauce, 
And the way you make it, I've read a thousand recipes. You ferment the peppers and garlic and whatever ingredients are going to go in there. So I have a big crock. It's been sitting there for, I don't know, two months now fermenting. And then when I make hot sauce out of it, I blend the fermented peppers, onions, garlic. I add brine until I get the consistency I want. And then the final step for a fermented hot sauce is you add quite a bit of vinegar. And I keep asking people, when I add the vinegar, am I killing the probiotics? And nobody seems to have an answer for that. Right. So there are some fermented recipes that we do add vinegar to. And I keep asking the question, is the vinegar going to kill off the probiotics? And I, nobody really seems to have a good answer for that. Right. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, okay. Well, I just had a question about that because, I mean, it was, I was pretty upset when I looked at the jar. Cause I, yeah. I went yeah, up on and, a case, you know, just so now it's like, and then I got the vinegar. And I'm like, eh, what do I do? Yeah, that? in this case, it's just not very clear. I think I would ask them. All right. Okay, well, thank you very much, Kevin. You have a great day. You yeah. haven't gone on your flight, have you? What's that? You're talking about going on a... I said you were talking about having to fly out the other day, so oh, you didn't have to I, fly out, obviously. I, not yet. I the, the plans keep changing. I may or may not be traveling this weekend. Uh, I'm just still not sure yet. I mean, that's just kind of... What's well, been going on with us? Enjoy kinds your of, trip if you do go. Well, thank you, because flying right now does not look very enjoyable at all. Flying right now seems to be a mess, but uh, I appreciate it. Thanks okay, for that. Okay, we'll make the best of it. Yeah, thanks. Um, all right, it looks like uh, we're going to have some room for some more calls here. We kind of blew through a bunch of those quickly. So if you dial right now, 855-950-3835. Still have some room to get you in. Let's go to Pennsylvania. Brian, welcome to the program. Hey, Kevin. Um, oh, I got so many new things. Well, you were talking <laughs> about the big fleet. Yeah, and, and I learned from you that the big fleets typically have a 1% profit margin. So if you want to have a 1% profit margin <laughs> as an owner-operator, knock yeah. yourself out. That's right. And um, just just so people understand, because I, I don't assume that anybody understands much about economics or money or business. So um, the way that works, how they get away with making, you know, three cents a mile profit is when you have 10,000 trucks, do the math. It, it's just economies of scale. Right. It, it, but when you're a single truck owner operator, you have to absolutely maximize every bit of profit. But the good news is you can. You only have to worry about one truck and one driver. That should be your whole focus is maximizing every penny you can put back into your pocket. Yeah. And, and on the other hand, owner operators I talk to lose their minds when they find out I have a three to one trailer ratio. I go, oh, oh my God, you can only pull one at a time. That doesn't make any sense. And it's like, well, no, actually it makes a lot of sense. Yes, it does. There, you know, I make this statement and I know people don't understand it when I say it. The money in trucking is in trailers, not trucks. We have to have a truck to pull trailers right. around, but the money is always generated by the trailer. 
Right. And they're three of the same trailers. It's, it's not, you know, I don't do the, you know, whichever oh. market's up. I stick with the one and, and uh, you know, oh, so drop trailers. So um, let me ask you then, because I, I thought you actually had different trailer types, which is one strategy. You have multiple vans, I'm assuming? Yes. And, and, and I got really lucky on acquiring them. One is a rental. It's a 2020 Hyundai that I only pay 355 a month for, and the other two are paid off. Excellent. So is the idea here you actually do spotted trailers? Yeah, I, I do like 90% of my work with uh, a broker that um, we, we, that shipper basically only does drop trailers. They don't want to, they don't want to talk about live loading. Yeah. See, um, that's so awesome. I always have a trailer there. That, yeah. And I, I always under- have a trailer there and. Yeah. Yeah, I understand why other owner operators look at you like you have three heads because this is pretty rare. I mean, you don't see this a lot with a single truck owner operator who's got a system set up where they can use multiple trailers in a drop and hook operation, but that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh on the on the probiotic thing, I <laughs> And I'm sorry, everybody, Prime Day's over. But yesterday, I bought like $300 worth of kombucha. Um, and I, I've never even tried this particular kombucha before. But I, I I don't know if you've seen it. It's the Hum brand, but it's Hum Zero. It has zero carbs. It's sweetened with monk fruit. And it's shelf-stable. It's not refrigerated. Um, so I don't. That kind of throws some confusion into the whole thing. I haven't seen um, that. It, well, if it's shelf-stable again, I have to go back to laws and regulations. I, I leave kombucha out occasionally, um, you know, overnight or whatever, and I don't worry about it. I, I drink it. The, the, real, the only real reason I don't do it a lot is, hell, sometimes the bottles or cans will explode if they have, you know, if they get too warm or whatever. But I don't worry about kombucha spoiling because it was left out. It's probiotic. It's not going to spoil. But I have to believe if they're putting this on the shelf without refrigeration that it's not probiotic. It, I just checked while I was on hold. It says probiotic. It says over 2 million cultures. Huh. So, yeah, I don't know. Actually, 2 million <laughs> isn't much. I think that's really low. wonder if that's how they're getting away maybe with it this. Maybe it was billion. Uh, it might have been billion. Yeah, it could have. I know that when you start looking yeah, at those numbers, they're so big, you, you get confused. But it, it, we should be in the billions, 10, 20, 30, 40 billion. So when, if I hear 4 million, I'm like, well, that's barely probiotic. Maybe that's how they're getting away with it. I don't know. Yeah, if you just search well, Amazon for Hum Zero, the, it'll, it'll come up. I'm going to have to do a little digging here because here's the other thing. I didn't think you could make kombucha without some sort of sugar, real sugar, not not like a sugar alcohol or a stevia or monk fruit. I thought you had to have sugar to feed the bacteria. Well, is it possible that it did and they the, they actually engineered it that it ate it all up? Well, you know, you know what I mean? I don't know. Is it, is it on the ingredient list? Are they showing some sort of honey, sugar? I I didn't I didn't have a chance to look at it. Mike, my, my guess is no. I've never seen 
where you could actually have the ferment consume all of the sugar and it's completely gone. So when they say zero carb, that I can see that if used monk fruit, but the bacteria can't multiply on monk fruit. There's no calories there. There's no, there's no there there. So I'm confused how they made kombucha without sugar and how they're putting it on a shelf without refrigeration. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't have all the details, huh. but it's, it's, it'll come right up. So it's hum zero. But, yeah. I'll go look for that. Yeah. Um, but you know what I, what I really called about, I've been dying the way in on this whole, uh, cardio miracle, uh, cilantro soap <laughs> thing. Okay. What's your experience? Um, so, I mean, I, I like cardio miracle. I, I mean, it's not Coca-Cola, but I mean, it's okay. I get it down. No problem. I, I do find it like really sweet. So what I do is, uh, I do 20 ounces of water and, and what I think really balances it out is I put a cap full of light balance in it. Oh, that's an idea. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't think I've and, ever tried uh, that. And I do like, yeah, and I do like cilantro. Uh, however, I got to say, I'm not like a curry fan, but I, I kind of like curry. But the Thai curry bone broth tastes like soap to me. So here we go again. This is funny how this works. So I, I've said many times, I can eat almost anything. There's, there are almost no foods that I don't like. I, I'm just not picky when it comes to food. Um, there's one flavor I just can't handle, and it's Indian curry, and I know which spice is in there that, that makes it bad, and it's turmeric. I do not like the taste of turmeric. I hate the taste of turmeric. It's one of the very few foods that exist in the world that I will not eat. I can smell it from 10 feet away, and I just, I don't know what it is about that taste. But for some reason, the Thai curry I absolutely love. So I have to assume that there's, I, I can taste a little bit of turmeric in the Thai curry. I can tell that flavor's there, but it's really in the background. So it, it just doesn't bother me. But it, it's, it's the amount of turmeric that's in a curry and Indian curries. It's like the primary ingredient. I just can't handle them at all. Huh. You're the first person I've heard well, say that the I Thai curry tastes like soap. That's a new one. <laughs> yeah. Huh. That's all I got today. All right. That's all I need. Thanks for the call. All right. So calls are coming in here. I'm going to have to try to blow through these here now. I asked everybody to call me, and they did. Let's go to Georgia. Richard, welcome to the program. Hey, Kevin. Uh, you've ever heard of a rocket stove before, haven't you? Yeah, you're talking about the little uh, really small, lightweight for backpacking kind of stuff? Yep. You can also build them out of uh, bricks. Uh, just leave, leave a hole at the bottom and the, the kind of chimney, st chimney stack all the way at the top. You just put your pot on the top and just feed your, your uh, wood through there. If you uh, go on uh, Healthy Tribe, about three posts down, I posted a picture 
of me doing oh. a chest pressure canning. I saw that this morning. How's it going? Yeah. It maintained 10 and a half pounds of pressure for the full 90 minutes of, of that. Excellent. Excellent. So I've, now- been wondering, I've been wondering about that because uh, when the shit hits the fan and we ain't got no power or no propane, what are we going to do about whenever I want to uh, pressure can some of my deer meat or some of my fish or whatever, I- and I ain't got no propane and no power? I was just about to say you you figured out that we can uh, we can continue to can our meat throughout the apocalypse now. Yeah, so I've, I've been online trying to trying to study this out, and there's about two only two or three videos that I found. No, actually, there's three videos that I found of somebody doing pressure canning on a rocket stove, but they all of them was ten, eight, and thirteen years ago. Nobody's doing it nowadays. Whenever, whenever the price of propane's out the out the yin yang and uh, yeah. all this, that, and the other. But uh, so I, I, I've been trying to figure this out because we're just to move out in the woods, and I, I really want to be able to be self sufficient. You can't be self sufficient when so, you have to depend on your power and uh, pressure can and it's propane it, stuff. Absolutely. So learning how to pressure can on an open fire is pretty awesome. But I'll give you another tip, too. Um, make sure you have a good water bath canning set up. And if you're out in the woods and you have lots of room, um, remember to water bath can, all we need is boiling water. So I've seen right. people, I've seen people make big long troughs outdoors and they build up (laughs) they build a fire under the whole trough fill it with water and their their water bath canning like a hundred quarts at a time oh wow that's about like uh, getting maple syrup exactly i've seen setups that are similar to that because again all we need to water bath can is boiling water so we can make a big, big container and just build a fire under the whole thing. And all we have now, we're not worried about pressure going up and down as it gets hotter and colder. All we have to do is kind of maintain that that boil or simmer. And if it boils too much and gets too yeah. hot, so what? And if it drops a little bit for yeah. a little bit, it's so I love the idea of being able to pressure can over an open fire. I think I actually talked about that a couple of years ago. I said, I was going to start playing around with it um so i'm glad to see you're doing it and it's working but also keep in mind that it might be easier to set up a big outdoor water bath canning setup yeah and that, what the bricks that i used they had they wasn't like uh, uh sharp edges so there was some gaps in it and this was I, this was just a test run all i did was just water only no nothing i didn't okay. pressure can anything but uh, then I'm going to go get some, some good bricks, and I'm going to test it with that. Still not going to pressure can anything yet. But the third, the third after this try, I'm going to pressure can one jar of meat and see how that turns out. Um, I, I will eat it right afterwards, uh, but I just I'll keep it a couple of days and make sure that it's the still Stay stays sealed, on yeah. it. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, but about the, about the third time I do this, I'm going to pressure can a jar of meat, but uh, I am planning on to try to make me a bigger setup to where I can uh, be able to have my uh, 921 
fit a little bit more better on the on the well, uh, rocket stove. Well, well, perfect. It, keep in mind. Also, make sure it'll fit a nine twenty five because that's what I've got, and I'm going to wait for you to perfect this, and then I'll build one from your plans. How, how big is that? Uh, twenty five quart. The nine twenty one is a no, twenty one quart. Oh, go ahead. No, the di- the diameter. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I think my I think mine's like 14, 14 and a half, somewhere around fourteen inches in diameter. But I'm, I'm thinking about doing. I'm thinking about setting the diameter on of the, the rocket stove at least about ten about ten inches on the nine. I mean, it'll, it'll still work on it. On the nine twenty one, if you're using pints, can you do two layers? Yes. So then. Oh oh oh. Uh, no, I. You know, I don't think I can. So I think... I don't think it's tall enough. I think the 921 and the 925 might be the same diameter, but the 925 is taller so I can get a second layer. Taller, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, the big one is... The the biggest one, you can do two of them, but it's really, really uh, big and round. Okay, yeah. No, I I wouldn't mind building me a setup outside for that. Hey, hey! Uh, I tried to do a video of it, but it would only, it wouldn't let me do a long video. I mean, uh, I tried to do like two minutes or, or a minute, and it wouldn't allow me to do that. Is there a setting on the uh, on the app to where I can get that in, or is that going to be something on my phone? Or probably have to uh, lower the video quality. Maybe I guess. Uh, yeah, you could call um, call our tribe care team, and they can probably help you with it. And which one would I need to speak to on that? Uh, whoever answers. Oh, whoever. Okay. Yeah, they'll get right, you. I'll give a call if, today, if they then. can't answer it, they'll they'll find somebody and they'll get you an answer. But I, I would give them a call, or you could also um, message right. message Aaron on either one of the tribes, and he'll help you out. Aaron. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and I'll the next two times I do it, I'll I'll post some more pictures and give some more information and updates on how how it turns out and everything. Perfect. I'll look forward to it. Thanks. Yes, sir. All right. Let's go to Kentucky. Mike, welcome to the program. Hello. What's on your mind today? Hello. I got the Garmin watch. I was wondering how to get to the pulse ox reading. I can't, it just shows up zero. Nothing. Um, there's a setting where you have to turn it on. Pulse ox is actually um, measured overnight. And it kind of creates a baseline, and then once you turn it on and it measures overnight, then you can, you know, check it anytime you want throughout the day. There's probably a setting somewhere that you haven't turned it on. Let me ask you this. If you look at your your watch, can you see how many days your battery's going to last? Yeah. How many? What, 24. Then you don't have pulse ox turned on. When you turn on pulse ox after oh, okay. a full charge, you'll probably have like 13 or 14 days. I get 27 when I charge mine when I have it off. When I turn it on, I think I get 13 or 14. Okay, I'll go look for it. There you, you go. Yep, yeah, it uses quite a bit of power, so that's one way to know. And the default is it's off. If you get a new watch, the default is that it's turned off, I think. You have to turn it on. Uh, all right, let's go to Florida. Matt, welcome to the program. Good morning, Kevin. What's on your mind today? Um, I missed the missed the first forty minutes or so of the show, so 
I don't know what all you talked about, but the post you made about uh, profits of owner operators. That was that was part of my and, open uh, going that, into the negative. Yeah, that article came from yeah. from Overdrive, and it was Jason Cannon that wrote it. I, I I just I don't know where he got those numbers. Yeah, it's it. Uh, well, I mean, it's very possible with the depending upon where you. I, uh, I sent you my business report, which is up to date through June. So we're right at six months of the year. Um, I don't even know, you know, with, with things turning down for a lot of owner operators, I guess I got to be careful how I word stuff nowadays. <laughs> I, I don't want to make anybody feel bad, but <laughs> following, you know, everything you recommend, um, with dedicated customers or good relationships with the brokers I work with, I haven't seen any downturn yet. Uh, your numbers aren't showing it. Your profit is still a dollar eighty-one a mile. Profit. And just to be clear, I have everything paid for, so I have no payments on anything. I'm running a debt-free business, and obviously, there's no payroll included in there. So my expenses are seventy nine cents a mile. Yes, that's I awesome. I know many owner operators that their fuel is more than that. Correct. Right. So the thirty one cents a mile, I can kind of get on board. Yes, there are some owner operators out there only making thirty one cents a mile. I get that. I don't think it's an average. But I, they're out there, so I can kind of let that one slide. But answer me this, Matt, how many owner-operators do you know that could make it two weeks if they were truly at a 35-cent-a-mile negative? It, they, they can't survive at that. They're not going to make it a month. No, because, yeah, most... They, I, I, well, I, I can't even... Average. I can't even put together numbers that would end up at 35 cents a mile negative for a single truck. I, I can't make it work. Yeah, I mean, the average owner-operator I know out here that, you know, probably, well, they've heard of you, but don't listen to your show, don't care to hear about anything you talk about. You know, they're just, they're out here doing their own thing, and most of them, yeah, can't make it two weeks without a paycheck and have a negative paycheck would be you know most of them don't even have that much credit on a credit card even float um, so exactly that's my point i mean you know i've over the years i've had owner operators call me and say i got to do something i'm losing money and the first thing i say is no you're not No, you're, oh, no, I'm losing money. I can't pay my, and I'll say, well, stop. You might not be able to pay your bills at home, but that doesn't mean you're losing money. No, I know I'm losing money. Well, then let's look at your profit and loss. Well, I don't have one, but I know I'm losing money. No, you're not. It's almost impossible to run a single truck today and spend more money than your revenue was. That's almost impossible. And my revenue is actually down a little bit. My uh, or my profit. I well, say. let's think about this for a second. Using your numbers, your expenses are what yep. seventy nine cents a mile. Is that what the number was? Yeah, 
go back yep. to that. Yeah, $0.79 cents a mile are expenses. That means that you could pull freight at a dollar a mile and still make $0.21 cents profit. At a dollar a mile. So who the hell is losing $0.35 cents a mile and somebody has to show me that math? Yep. Well, it, it wouldn't take long to add up with, you know, big expensive truck payments. I mean, you could you could easily double my expenses in a poorly run business with high equipment payments. I guess, but you you'd have to be pulling for bottom of the barrel rates and have tons of empty miles. And I, I mean, to get to that, and like I said, if an owner operator got to that number, we'd never know about it because they're not going to survive a month anyway. They're just going to be gone. Well, yeah, and that's those are the numbers I'm waiting to see, and I always mean when I when I'm stopped to start doing some research on this. But the it seems like there's starting to be less trucks out here on the road. Um, you know, and the the dealership lot, lots are filling up. Yeah, so there's there's trucks for sale. The the auction numbers are slowly coming down. Um going to be interesting the uh last month we had the uh the authority the number of authorities that were turned back in nine thousand yeah yeah i I haven't seen june's numbers yet but i'm assuming it's going to be just as high if not even higher i think it's going to be higher i i really do i need to go look for those and see i forgot where i found that last time i gotta go look for that yeah I've, i've got it saved somewhere so i'll have to pick that up and i'll send it to you okay yeah i'm pretty sure the numbers are going to get higher for several months going forward um i I just don't see how it can't happen at this point you know we're we're waiting uh i think we have another week or two for all the final numbers to come out to determine whether we're already in a recession so the way we yeah, I, the way we say this is a recession, we have specific targets. Numbers have to be this at you know on this metric, and but we don't know it till after the fact. So that's what we're waiting for right now. Yep. We may find out in a week or two that the news might say, "Oh, we've been in a recession for the last two quarters." Yep. But yeah, and it may be. You know, depending upon the time frame, because I don't think January was that bad. No, I remember right. So no, I don't think so. We we may still have another. You know, we have to wait till July's numbers get in there before we can say it's six months. Right. But right. there's no doubt it's going to happen. You know, it's, it's just a matter of when the time frame is right. It's, it's, it's yeah. It's I don't. Happen. I, I don't think anybody with more than two brain cells that has any understanding of our economy, I don't think there's anybody left that can claim we're not going to have a recession. Nope. And um, just economic interest news, I, so I started the other day the, um, the book you've been talking about, uh, The End of the World is just the beginning. Yeah, what do you Maybe think? Halfway through it. Well, I don't, I mean, I'm not convinced that this is what's going to happen. I could see how a lot of it's possible, but 
you know, the world economy, there's so many moving parts. It's, it's impossible. I mean, it's impossible to predict one country. I know. I, that's he, he situation. He, how to predict the whole world is, is, is a stretch. You know, the, the, the way the information he is great. Yeah, I, I learned a lot so that I really enjoyed the book because I learned a lot about our global supply chain and about different countries and products and all kinds of crazy stuff that I really liked. But I, I also while I was reading, I swear my mindset was like, yeah, this is what's going to happen. He, he makes it seem so logical. And it wasn't until I could step back away from the book and then rethink about it and go, wait a minute, this is really complicated. That He's making an awful lot of assumptions here. Yeah. And, you know, there's certain things I completely agree with when he talks about a disruption in the oil. And yeah. then oil prices go up. He talked about Russia and the Cold War. And back in, was it? or whenever when Russia finally collapsed and they still don't have all of that oil back online yet. Right. Yeah. Yeah. When from way back then. They, yeah. Ex- yeah, exactly. They, all you know, infrastructure wait, takes a long time to come back on. Make it shut down. Well, when, when Biden stands up there and, you know, says, oh, it's the greedy oil companies that don't want to pump any more oil. And we're telling them now they need more refining capacity. Does anybody understand what it would take to build a new refinery here in this country? It's impossible. So maybe you can try to go back and open it, but even opening up old refineries is huge long-term investments. You don't go open up a, a shuttered refinery to be able to produce a little more fuel for a couple months. That that doesn't happen. That's out of the question. It can't happen. So when he stands up there and says that, it's it's so ridiculous to, to claim that this is the oil comp the the oil company's fault and they make more money not pumping oil. And here's the part that nobody talks about that. I don't think anybody realizes the dollar amount that was lost with all the fracking, the amount that they had to invest. And a lot of that was smaller companies, so I guess you could divide out big oil, but whatever. But, you know, they were involved some way or another. Um, but, I mean, it's billions and billions of dollars that were lost because of COVID. Yes. This went negative. I mean, it's the record profits right now. If you did a 10-year average, they're still in the red. Yeah. Yeah, this, it, this it, the whole, you know, and, and it seems pretty clear now that this administration and other countries really do believe that we can just turn off, you know, oil production and move to electric. And I, I you know, if you listen to the show, you know how much of a fan I have of electric. I, I love this stuff. But I've also said it, it, it's we're not going to replace. The part I'm in right now. Yeah, we're not going to replace oil ever with this stuff. It, it's not going to happen. And thinking we can make this transition right now is insane. But so the the I'm, I'm in that, that green energy part right now where he's talking about batteries and. And yeah, solar and wind and how right it's nowhere near you know even 
a couple of decades from happening. Correct. Right. And that's if we had everything in place right now to make it happen, which we don't. We don't. The stuff isn't even invented yet. And and so, when we force uh, these things, everybody gets screwed. You force a move to electric and solar and wind, the oil companies will suffer. And we need the oil companies, even if we could replace. He, he makes a pretty clear argument for all the other stuff that we use oil for. So we still need them. But when we force this the way we're doing it, we're going to hurt the oil companies. And the solar electric wind being subsidized by the government is going to be a disaster. And at some point, we're not going to have enough power. Well, yeah, and I, if I remember right, the number was 60% of oil is used for motor vehicle fuel. It, yeah. So even so, if we did away with all of that, we still need 40% of the oil we produce every day. That's a lot. Just for other things. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, don't, I didn't realize the number was that big. I don't think most people do. So it's not like we can stop the drilling. The oil companies can't go away. We still need this product for a lot of other stuff. A lot. I mean, you look at how many barrels of oil we go through and to think we'll still need 40% of that amount if every vehicle on the road was electric. And here's the thing. I don't think he mentioned this in the book. So that other 40%, that's kind of what we call byproducts. I mean, out of a barrel of oil, you heat it up, you get different levels of the hydrocarbons turn into different products. And the most profitable is your motor fuel. Right. So if we truly did away with motor fuel, you wouldn't be able to buy plastic. Yeah. Because it that, would be so expensive. Correct. And that that's that, that's kind of my point. We would kill the oil industry because of cost if we do it this way. And we'll end up killing wind and solar because if we force everybody into it, what determines prices? Supply and demand. If we create an artificial demand because we force everybody into it, those prices will go through the roof and nobody will be able to afford that either. Yeah, the most interesting part I've read so far is the economic and finance around the world and other countries. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, we... We know how bad our budget is and our deficit inside the United States, but we're actually not that bad compared to some other countries. And China sounds like an absolute financial disaster. Yep. They're, they're, they got a lot of problems if, when, when they, things slow down. It, it, it seems like their model know, is well, they borrow gazillions of dollars to put out low-value products. Yep. But they've all, I mean, it's infrastructure, too. I mean, they don't slow down on infrastructure on anything, so there's, things that will help them in a downturn by having the infrastructure but yeah the low value products everybody's going to dump them right away well the the biggest thing really um is if we truly deglobalize 
China is in a world of hurt. It's like the U.S. couldn't be in a better position if we have to provide everything for ourselves and our country, and China couldn't be in a worse position. Yeah, that's the interesting part in the book is how how well prepared we are. I mean, yeah, we got a lot of manufacturing to rebuild and all that to get things back online in this country to be self-sufficient. But we can. But we we have the ability to do it. Yeah, we can do it. We have the resources. We have the material. We have the people. um, We can do it. China's the exact opposite. They are so heavily leveraged and financed and without the rest of the world and the global supply chain, they will collapse. Yeah, because they don't have, for electricity, they got to import almost all their coal. Yep. Um, even their steel, they're importing all of the, um, the iron ore. Correct. So yeah, they and yeah, and they, they use a lot of steel. Shipping. Yep. So yeah, and they're, and, and they're, they're not as well off as some people think, and they're not well situated to be able to use wind and solar. No. Yeah, that's the well, other thing uh, we forget about. Yeah, wind and solar doesn't work everywhere. In fact, there are very few places that it really works all that well. Well, and that's, he says, you know, the United States has land to do it, but the best wind and solar in the United States is not where the population is. No. No, it's out so in deserts. Even though, yeah, we have it, it still doesn't work. Not well. No, it, it's not where we need it. And, and we're one of the best countries for wind and solar. I think Australia, he said, was number one, which makes sense with the outback. We were yep. like number two. We're, we're the second best country in the world suited to use wind and solar. China was way down at the bottom of the list. But Australia has the same problem. It, right. It's All way out in the outback. All population right. along the coast. Yeah. And yep. the wind and, and solar is yeah, in the middle of the country. Where they, yep. So they have to build huge transmission lines and there's, you know, that. Yeah. The, he did give a number. The, the difference, again. Yeah, the, the, the difference, again, is that with Australia or us, yeah, we have to build those things, but we can. It's possible. Everything is there to do it. The, the scary part of this is when you looked at countries that had almost no resources. No. But yeah, if we, if we were starting from scratch with solar or wind, I don't remember which one to use as example, if the grid didn't exist already versus starting from scratch with coal, where the cost would be, it was like 16 times as much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I said, I, I the book makes so many assumptions to, to make this all work the way he claims it's going to, that there are a lot of other possibilities, but it was still one of the most interesting books I've read in a long time. Yeah, I, I can't put it down it's- yeah, I, the show's I, over, it's going back on. Yeah, I read it in two days, and I wasn't listening. I read it in two days. I, I almost read it in one. Um, and it's, I, I don't know, it's like 10 hours or something. Um, 
But it, it was, it, like I said, it's really interesting. And now every time I read headlines, I'm kind of looking for, you know, clues that this is happening. And you know what? They're there. So again, I'm not, I'm not completely well, convinced the entire world's going to stop shipping. You know, think about this. I got thinking about this. If it happened, we just didn't ship at all anymore. I, I can't see that happening. But, you know, we're talking about the protest in the ports right now and all these container ships with all that product and we can't get it and we haven't been able to get it for almost a year now we've been talking. That all goes away. There wouldn't be ports. Yeah, that's the part I can't get my head around either, is that it just collapses. (laughs) I realize it's going to change, and it could slow down, but I just, I can't get my head around it. I can't either. Coming to an end. Yeah, I can't either. So we'll, we'll keep an eye on it. All right, I've got to wrap this up. I know I'm a little late already, but I am going to take this last call because I said I would. Uh, oh, no, I think I got them all. Um, yeah, I'm going to wrap this up. Uh, I was supposed to be out of here by nine. I'm 16 minutes late. So we will see you back here tomorrow for a freaky free for all Friday. Be safe. Be profitable. Be fit and healthy. Always do the hard work and master the journey.